Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. I'm Colin Hunter, and I'm delighted to be joined by Andrew Webster today. Andrew Webster is Head of Transformation for Experience Point, Canadian company we've part with, partnered with for a number of years. And he goes back, way back with myself. He sits on our advisory board at the moment, and the reason he got that seat was of his work with us, whether it was training me in design thinking, or whether being a coach and a mentor around those the operating and the delivering of design thinking to our clients and how we do this internally. So he's been a very strong mentor for me in my thinking and, and how we operate. Uh, and also now he's starting to, to work with me to, to shift my thinking about the, the different pillars of our business and how we operate. So I'm delighted to be able to bring him in today to have a chat. And he can, in this uh, episode, you'll hear a number of things. His journey from firstly being somebody who worked with an investor, um, a very wealthy investor. He was given accountability for for almost, the, as he describes, the keys to the candy store and being able to go off and develop new ideas through that, that investor's money and capital. And then into his work within Experience Points, design thinking, into the now into that work of transformation and the blending of design thinking and change into a transformation project. And he's scaled up so many projects in this space that, you know, he can talk as you can hear him today, talk about some of those experiences and his learnings from there. But I think the biggest thing you'll, you'll hear is a Canadian humble person who is, um, who comes from that place that allows others to feel special. And that's what I've always felt working with Andrew. So I'm delighted to have him in today. And looking forward to hearing your feedback and the conversation that I enjoyed. Delighted to be joined today by Andrew Webster, who is, uh, to me, a mentor. We met in Paddington Station. So if you can imagine two people meeting in a coffee shop, and uh, I can say fundamentally that that meeting changed the way I operate, changed the way I run my business, and changed the way I think. So I owe this gentleman a lot, but I'm sure that what he's going to do today is share a lot of his thoughts, his wisdom with us about what he's been through. So Andrew, welcome to Be More Wrong Podcast. Yes, I'm so happy to be here, Colin. And I must say, it's generous to call me a mentor, especially if you consider the skew, how much more I've learned from you than you could possibly hope to learn from me. I also consider it generous to say that we met in a, a coffee shop. I don't know if you're trying to make us sound cool, but, but it was a Starbucks and, and moreover, it, was, it, was, <laughs> it was a little nook, not a place where a table actually belongs in a Starbucks. In a, we were squirreled away, hunched over um, what isn't even an yeah. adequate table. But it was a great meeting. It was a great meeting, yeah. And, uh, and you know, the, my, my father always used to say, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. But I, it felt... It, <laughs> we'll it edit felt, that out, yeah. It, 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 was a, it was a coffee shop in Paddington. <laughs> it's brilliant. And I, and I do think there's a, there's a piece that it would be useful because you're a humble man, and that's one of the key things in there, whether it's the Canadian in you or whatever it is. But I'd, I'd love to, and for the listeners, to hear a bit about your background and where you've come from, what you've done. So tell, yeah. talk us through it. Well, what an impossible challenge, Colin, that is. <laughs> hey, now, I've told everyone you're humble. Now tell us about your background in a way we might care. So, uh, I'll do my best in Canadian fashion to attribute it to a, an American. So okay. very early on in, in my career, I was really fortunate 
you know, I, I got to my professional path in a different way and was very fortunate to be mentored by a brilliant, brilliant man, John Abley. The time I, I met him, he's one of the founders of Boston Scientific, one of the you know wealthiest, most successful men in the world. And he took me under his wing. I had made a weird proposal to him about how to uh, establish a business within a collaboration institute that he had. And, and he took me on instead of taking on PhDs or anything like that. He, he took on this kid with a weird idea and he nurtured my entrepreneurial capabilities, let's say, as well as taught me a lot about being more wrong. John himself, and, and this is documented in a semi-biography that he's written. He had a condition when he was a child and learned very quickly that doctors, in the interest of saving lives and improving lives, sometimes they have to experiment. They have to test and get things wrong testing on people. And that taught him a lot about experimentation. I was so fortunate to learn from him. And indeed, I was a kid in a candy store planting new businesses within his collaboration institute, using technologies for things that they were never designed to be used for, like decision support and audience response technologies, using those instead of as teaching tools for collaboration tools to surface grievances with strategy meetings and things like that punching way above my weight, standing on this person's shoulder. So learned a lot there. And because he was so busy for him to, I would get a couple of days a month with him. And the general manager of this institute said, Andrew, you're an entrepreneur. And I'm more of like a hospitality type of person managing the setting that we're in. So I don't feel I can mentor you, but you need more mentorship. And I do know an entrepreneur. And that she introduced me to the founder of Experience Point, a man named James Chisholm. And so I got to know James. We collaborated on a few Uh, things. Yes. And eventually I I just decided, at first I decided that this is someone I have to work with, James. And just one of the best decisions in my life. And then this is something I want to do in the world. Um, So moved over to Experience Point. And in just about 12 and a half years now, I've had a, a different role about every two years. Now I, I lead our transformation practice and I have a lot more to say about the experience point journey, but I think those questions will, will come up more naturally in our conversation here. That's great. No, I, I love that. And uh, obviously James is a, a mutual friend, so it's nice to hear that story. I never heard how you got there, so that's, that's great for me to hear. I want to just tap into one of the things you talked about because I talk about playgrounds in in my work and leaders creating playgrounds. And there was a leader who took you under his wing and gave you a playground to play. And I, you know, I would be like a kid in a sweet shop there or a candy store for those who are listening in America to have a look at. But it must have been an amazing experience and almost almost too good to be true in some ways for you. How did it feel? It was in many ways. So I had access to this individual, but also this individual's global network of Mm -hmm. thought leaders. So I just got to interact with people that I had no right to interact with um, and learn at at such a pace. Someone that was interested in trying new things, he he wanted to change the way people collaborated. He He had a very big vision and gave me space to think about how I would contribute to that vision and then provided a lot of feedback on on the things that I was trying out, but very much a a test-to-learn approach. You know, there were expectations that I was going to grow and plant 
scalable, successful businesses, which I, I also think was an essential part of it. The, the candy store needs to have consequences or the sweet shop needs to have, you know, tooth decay or, or it's not fun. You're not misbehaving, you know? So I, I wonder how essential an ingredient that was, but it was a lot of fun to do the work. It was a lot of fun to learn from a, a network of people I might not have had access to. And my willingness to experiment and make ridiculous proposals I was not qualified to make, I, I think is something this individual respected in me, I think. That is amazing. That's great. So let's pick that up and go into the experience point because because there's a lot of parallels there, isn't there? I mean, if you look at the design thinking, the philosophy, behind, for those who don't know anything about experience point and, and the background, maybe just tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so experience point, when I joined, we were the world's leading simulation company. So we said, experience is the greatest teacher in the world, but it is a flawed teacher in that it, it takes too long. It's fraught with risk and we usually extract the wrong lessons. So simulation helps us to make learning by experience more focused, less risky and, and just better. And so we had this vision, everyone's going to learn this way through simulation and in due course, more and more people are learning this way. It's kind of an expectation. So what's the next vision? And now experience point, we are like a workforce transformation company. Our products are used by businesses like Potential Squared, where you're, you're changing behavior within organizations. Our tools like our simulations are a part of a solution that you and other consultancies might provide. Or if you were to go to like a Harvard Business School, NCAD, IMD, et cetera, they would use our, our tools within their executive education programming. And we work directly with customers as well to help transform workforces. So help train people in new skills and help them apply those skills to adapt the conditions of their environment. So people will, will do things differently. So again, great. We work with a global client base, get to learn from just the most interesting people in the world. And our, our partners are global as well, that we have great feedback loops with them. There's lots of learning from all directions. And we like to say that we create disproportionate impact through products that are going through channels of people like, like you call and that know better than we, how to have impact in the organizations that you're working with or the way we set up catalysts within organizations so they themselves are having disproportionate impacts on culture. I'm excited about experience point, but the, again, no, Canadian don't, don't, don't want this to sound like a commercial. So, well, I'd like to tackle into a couple of the areas that experience point. Because one of the one of the things, two things in my mind. One of the things was the partnership with IDEO. Yes. You know, and Tim Brown, absolute hero of mine, love his book. But actually meeting him and having the ability to to engage with him and see that caliber of person in terms of their thinking is one thing. So I'd love to explore that. But the second thing is that with IDEO and with your experience, I'm aware that you did a lot of traveling. I mean, you were the, the person who was, you know, probably 300 days out of the year was heading all over the world to different places, to China, to go and work with different cultures. And I'd love to understand the impact of that, the IDEO partnership, but then the cultural impact. So let's pick up IDEO and just see that bit for the, the beginning. Yes, early in my journey with Experience Point, we partnered with IDEO to create in collaboration with them our experience, innovation, learn as it's known now, simulation. So that is an experience that helps people learn design thinking by taking a 16-week project and shrinking it down in, into four hours. 
And now the design thinking wave is kind of cresting. Organizations know they need to be more customer centric and know that design is the best way to get them there. But around 2009, it was clear for IDEO and Experience Point that organizations were going to need to internalize some of these capabilities. We felt we were the best in the world at, at helping scale capabilities and IDEO was the best in the world at design thinking. And, and so there was a natural partnership there. <laughs> How much do I want to peel back the curtain here? The, the true story is a little more, there was a, a dogged pursuit by experience point. Uh, and, <laughs> Love it. and IDEO did bring us along. They, they taught us, they helped us transform into an organization that is very customer centric and design driven, understand those methods. And yes, we got to partner with the thought leaders, uh, a segue into the, the travel bit, Colin. I've had my IDEO passport stamped by every studio from nice. Singapore to Tokyo to Shanghai to London and Munich, et cetera, et cetera. So learning from those folks and exposing some thought leaders like, like Tim Brown, also a mentor of mine, exposing him to people in our networks. That's what disproportionate impact can feel like as well. And, and that's an exciting thing to be a part of. It's exciting to, to learn from people like that through the books they create and talks that they give, but also like directly to learn from that individual and see how they operate. It's been a, a thrill. And yeah, we've, we've just learned a ton from IDEO and, and connected with many people through their network that has just accelerated our learning, our capability and, and the impact we can have in the world. And I, I do remember one specific example of that was you ran a session where it was design thinking, but you were applying it to the heart and stroke of Canada. Is that right? Yeah. I was fortunate. And so that's, I, I got to interview Tim in, in front of folks that during that project, and then we kicked off a project. We partnered with the Canadian heart and stroke foundation, which is exactly what you think. They're they're an incredible organization of the most wonderful people that are just dedicating to saving lives. And it's kind of the, the last mile for heart and stroke. So more and more people are conscious of it and there are medications that mean it's not even the number one killer pre-pandemic here anymore. But when people do have an episode to get them treated with defibrillators or know how to, to save people that have had an experience or incidents. That's the project we were looking at and brought together some of those folks from Canadian Heart and Stroke Foundation that were generous to participate in this with us. And our global network, we had in that room calling people from, you know, I think a couple dozen countries from as uh, far away as South Africa and Dubai to many of the states were covered there. So these were business leaders and design leaders within organizations and folks like you, thought leaders, just to apply design thinking, not to a business challenge, but how are we going to help Canadians that witness heart or stroke event to save lives? And it's, it is a beautiful design challenge. And there were some great prototypes that came out of there. And I, I want to link it back because actually this week just being and we're in the middle of a program where we use design thinking. We take we're applying it to social. It's a program called Greenhouse. This year it's called Give Greenhouse in the Virtual Environment because we've shifted everything virtually. But that give piece as a charity piece. And and the idea, a lot of the idea for that came from this piece about that heart and stroke. Because if if we can give back to society while the people of Accenture in this case are learning through that process 
then it has a massive impact. And we, we were doing something else around purpose this week. And if you can connect the heart and stroke, and I have a vivid memory because my father, unfortunately, passed this year as a pediatric, was a pediatric cardiologist. But it was that moment of, you know, the interviews with the police that we had in that room around, you know, what happens in an accident. Then the interviews with the family, the survivors, uh, all of those things suddenly make the purpose greater than something that you might feel in the work. But it, it brought to mind for me this piece, two things. One is that Experience Point is a great company for customer service, but engaging in the community. But secondly, how powerful that is as a tool for social social good and, and work. Yeah. Yeah, you talk in your book about playgrounds. I, I have a lot to say about the, the, like how far you take the playground concept, but mm. I'm sorry that you lost your father, a, a great mm. man contributing mm. in that way. So I have the, the greatest respect for pediatric care physicians. And one place where we work kind of like a playground is the Sick Kids mm. Hospital here in Toronto. It is maybe the one of the greatest pediatric care facilities in the world. It is a teaching hospital. They're doing cutting-edge research. And the experience that we used with Heart and Stroke Foundation, that was experience innovation apply, you know it well. Before we put something into market, of course, we test the hell out of it, make sure it's bulletproof. And we have our prototyping partners that we do that with. And SickKids was one of those prototyping partners where they understand some of the technology is, is a little bit kludgy here and we're going to need their feedback. And when we consider play, playgrounds, I love to consider where would we love to have direct impact in a project sense while helping an organization build a capability while helping us build a product. There, there are ways to manufacture playgrounds that are good for multiple entities and for potentially humankind moving forward. And, and SickKids is that entity of choice for me. Yeah, I love that. And I, you know, for me, it's that layering on where you can teach, you can learn, create new products and you know we've done a lot of work with clients where we've we've partnered with them and we've created a playground to learn the experience and create a new platform or a new way of offering leadership for example and leadership development which we resonate it's for me now more than ever i'm thinking about the social impact so i love that story about the, the hospital work i want to relate that into the leadership piece because i your role in transformation experience point your role with working with the multiple clients you do there's a strong piece about, and I remember asking Tim this question, which is we do all this training and all this development, and then they go back to a, an organization where potentially all of that can just die. It doesn't go anywhere because of the culture. What's your views on leadership and the impact of, of innovation design thinking and leadership? Right. The, the quote we like is that a changed person entering an unchanged organization is likely to, to just drown in a pool of frustration. If you've seen what's possible, you've developed a new skill and you're not allowed to, to flex that skill, that, that can be really frustrating. And indeed, say, enthusiasm decays into cynicism very quickly. So the enthusiastic, not just individual, but groups or organizations of individuals if they're excited about, yes, we do need to be more customer-centric, and we hear it all the time, leaders saying, all right, it's, it's cool to fail here now, or we're going to be the sort of organization that innovates within X amount of time, those leaders have lit a fuse. And if they don't deliver on that, the promise that is either explicit or implicit in what they've said, 
people are going to become cynical and then you're working from a deficit. It's worse than if you've never mentioned anything to begin with. People will dig in, they get some of that syndrome of how we've tried that before. I've heard this before. So leaders can generate a lot of enthusiasm by setting a vision, but it is lighting a fuse. There's a responsibility that you create in that moment as a leader to follow through. And for something like a new capability set, like design thinking, first of all, the leader has to connect it to a vision. We've be more wrong, Colin. I have too many stories. It took us probably took me rather too long to learn this lesson that is crystallized for us now. If an organization rallies people around design thinking, that's not a very sustainable movement. And and this is a social movement to create change in an organization. Design thinking is a means to an end. It is a toolkit. So really, how is design thinking serving us? It is a tool to enable growth behaviors or a tool to enable customer centricity or a digital transformation because our customers are increasingly digital or for us to compete. It's what are we trying to accomplish here and connect the capability to that vision is the role of the leader and then enable the right conditions for new behaviors to thrive. It's also a responsibility of the leader. One way to look at it, and, and this sounds really clinical, but just a starting place is can think of what are the rhythm systems and channels that we can influence as leaders or empower other people to influence. A rhythm, something like we have check-ins with people. How, what new questions are we asking in those check-ins that suggest, oh, I expect you to be trying new things? Channels, if people are socializing through a Yammer or Gchat or some other group, how do we influence the communication there or create a permission for people to share new stories, things done differently? Or if you follow Dave Snowden like that, once you replace old stories in an organization with new stories, the narrative changes. That's how change happens. And then systems. Those are things like performance management systems, um, structures like infrastructure. Do we have a group of catalysts or other that are responsible for waving the culture flags. Those are some of the things a leader can start with in addition, of course, to their individual behavior that they model. I love that. So rhythms, systems, and channels. And that, you know, that's, that echoes for me, one of the, the writers I love is James Clear in the systems. You know, we don't rise to the level of goals. We fall to the level of our systems. I'm going to get that quote wrong, but the principle is the same. So I, I love that. I want to just tap in, Andrew, because there's, there's a piece in there that, you know, you and I have connected on this before. I've got a big fan, a big fan of a, a writer called Ozan Barrel who wrote the book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist. And we both talked about Adam Grant and the thinking like a scientist. Now, for a lot of leaders to think like a scientist and, and work in that space. And, you know, Ozan Barrel talks about the same thing, to learn fast and do that. It is very difficult. And there's an argument about failure and whether failure is good. And a lot of people say failure shouldn't be the, the measure. But learning fast and thinking like a scientist, for me, I can buy into. So I wondered if you want to talk a bit about your experience of working those two. Ooh, yeah, that's an interesting one. I'm also thinking of... I forget which Amy Edmondson publication it was, but she mentioned where a great leader needs the right amount of humility and hubris. You need to <laughs> inspire people. You just need to be constantly learning. And the way that an Adam Grant defines it, like a scientist is trying to expose how they might be wrong. <laughs> if we get into talking about how I'm most wrong, it's uh, I need to become more like a scientist. So 
fortunate to work with an organization where we imbue people with the instinct to, to test quickly. But I, you know, the, the great leader has strong beliefs very loosely held. Uh, the great scientist and the great leader that behaves like a scientist is looking to have their beliefs tested, their assumptions questioned. But how do we invite in different voices is a, an important question for me. So there's something I think I need to get better at. So in addition to when I have an idea, how do I test the assumptions within this idea for the design thinking framework? That's instinct. But when it's more decision-making or just shaping my beliefs, I can be, and have a very specific example of when you know I've established a belief about what the, the market needs, for example, have put so much energy into shaping offers and trying to motivate an organization to meet that market need that I can become put the blinders on, like, like any leader can, put the blinders on. And with that confirmation bias intact, only really look out for and listen to the perspectives that support this conclusion that I've you know attached my identity to. Whereas the, all been there. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The, the great scientists, I would say the great designer as well. They're looking for opportunities to be more wrong. And the great designer also gets a little bit of a thrill when you achieve an insight. And an insight is something that challenges your existing way of thinking. So how to port that skill that I, I feel I have some capability around going, connecting with people around a project and looking for ways to challenge what I think I know or inject new insights. How do I bring some of that skill and capability into my daily life and some of the behaviors that I hold is where I think I have the, the biggest gap right now. How do I experience a thrill and wow, I hadn't thought of it that way or wow, I've been wrong about this the whole time. And now I can celebrate that there is clarity and truth where once I was misleading myself. I, I love that concept. I just want to almost go off that into touch on a topic there because one of the things I, I struggle with with design thinking is is we all struggle for the, that insight, you know, that that seeking that insight. And, you know, you tense up, whoa, what is this insight? And we go out and do the observation. And we all know if we do the right type of observation and feel with them, normally we will get an insight, we'll, we'll flow from there. But sometimes that I struggle with, I start up with a hypothesis rather than the observation and then go out and, and test it. So for example, I hold a hypothesis that the, the greatest leaders in the world are introverts. And the reason I think that is because two things, one is that they, they have a natural comfort with silence and, and allowing others to speak. And the second thing is linked to design thing, which I'm starting to work up the ego and expertise, they're less worried about their ego and expertise or perceived to less worry about their ego and expertise in the moment. But that classically is going against some of the principles because you're you're putting a hypothesis out there rather than actually going and purely observing and working. So is that what we're meaning about a thing like a scientist is not put a hypothesis out, go observe, or is it, are you saying the opposite way around, just testing mm -hmm. it? We have hypotheses we carry with us, and that's a reality. So what to do with those hypotheses is maybe a, a way to approach this. By the way, that, that hypothesis of introverts being better leaders as a, a Canadian loudmouth, that just doesn't serve me very well, Colin. So now <laughs> I, have, I do have a stake in my ego has been challenged. <laughs> but one way to think about it is we're 
we do want to go into the world and observe, look for opportunities to be wrong. And it is true that at a neurological level, when we have our sense of mastery challenged, mm-hmm. then it, it affects our, our health. Like there's cortisol effect. But if we can start to feel a sense of mastery around being wrong, that is, I have an assumption or I hypothesis challenged. I'm good at having my hypotheses challenged and I'm good at accepting viewpoints or bits of data that challenge hypotheses. I think that becomes important in what I see in the best designers and scientists I know is that ability to celebrate having hypotheses challenged instead of kind of feeling that they're ego or identity is attacked by those things. And and one way to approach this is I've got a hypothesis. That's a reality. I need to make myself aware of my biases that could be attached to this hypothesis. So anytime you're doing discovery work of of any kind, and we should all be doing more discovery work or consider every action an item of discovery, then it can be useful to consider more useful to even write down what do I expect to learn in this conversation or observation? What do I expect to hear from other people? And what insights do I expect to encounter or what user needs or beliefs do I expect to encounter from other people? And if you write that stuff down, like you do do a purge or we call it a, a palate cleanse, Colin, then what you're doing is bringing some awareness to your biases. So, okay, that's what I think will happen. Now I need to recognize that I'm going to look too hard for those things. So let me not look too hard for those things. Let's be sensitive to viewpoints that might challenge those things and celebrate when I have those things challenged. And, you know, when we're considering what insights we could gather that are useful to us, things that confirm what we already know are probably less useful. So let's search for those things that aren't on the list, that aren't on my palate cleanser. Affirmation as diminishing returns it is that exploration, discovery of something new that's really going to make me smarter and better and more useful to the people I serve. I love that answer because it's it's crystallized in my mind. You know, probably January, February last year, if you'd asked me, would we be a virtual delivery business? And secondly, would we get higher results or better feedback on a virtual business and a face-to-face, having always been a face-to-face business? I would have almost laughed at you. And the other day, I saw the results from the last 12 months, and we did pretty well the face-to-face business. And we got the feedback, actually, that the virtual uh, workshops were were received better than the, the face-to-face one for many different reasons. But there's a, I was forced to go out and test that. But it's been a revelation for me in terms of thinking about how we engage as a business. So I think that's bringing that to life in a beautiful way. Like the, the, that forced agility. Um, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. We think about how yeah. carbon emissions have gone down. I don't know if you've seen the research from the Atlantic that over the last year, the aggregate happiness has not been affected. It's about steady around the world where for young people who are losing their jobs and freedom, they're less happy um, in a pandemic. But the elderly that see that other people are putting energy into and, and limitations upon themselves to care for them, that has been a boost to the happiness of elderly folks. So we're learning all these interesting things at a societal level, what's possible and, and 
you know, let, how do we keep those lessons and, you know, keep those elderly people feeling valued, keep carbon emissions lower. But there's also at the individual level, how can we make the most out of this crisis? These lessons that we're learning in forced agility for ourselves. Yeah, I would love for what is the scientist view there, Colin? How do, how do we all do better? I, I'll say I've been complicit or, or status quo about just trying to, to roll with the punches but haven't invested enough in thinking about how am I going to, I have these expectations of society, but how am I as a contributor, as a leader going to be better extract the lessons from the pandemic and what I've seen is possible from myself and from others. There's an interesting question in there, not well-formed, sorry. No, I I think it's, it's, it's resonating for me because I, you know, there's, there's a piece sometimes that when, when we're forced into something and we do that and then we see benefits, it's, it's classically for me, it goes back to sometimes we forget to understand why it's a benefit. We forget to understand how it can benefit. We almost go, well, there's success. Let me carry on. Yeah. I've spent more time for us, you know, as a family, we spent more time as a family over the last 12 months. And therefore there's been a connection with my daughters growing up. There's been other things in terms of, as you say, the, uh, the roads when we first in the pandemic, going out and cycling, just feeling the, the the need to go out and walk and cycle. So there's been huge amounts of benefits, personal benefits. But you're right. How do we sustain some of those? Particularly when, if I remember before, and a bit like you, I was traveling so much before. How do I get back to that? And if I can't address those challenges myself as a leader, how how am I expecting my people who follow me to do something similar as well? So there's a there's a real challenge. And I know that the new hybrid working is going to be one of the biggest challenges to leaders coming up, which is we're, we're moving to a different world coming up about how organizations are working. Um, what's the answer for leaders? And I do think that's where design thinking will come into its own in terms of trying to help shape the new ways of working, the new, new ways of running a business in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Design is one approach that can give you confidence in times of ambiguity because there are stages of a process. You can have confidence in the process when there is uncertainty and where you're applying the process. It, it can help to navigate ambiguity. I remember, Colin, when the pandemic first struck, there was a, assembled a tiger team at Experience Point. And how are we going to be most useful to the world that you know people early on weren't setting aside training budgets no one knew what was going on so how do you problem solve for a world that's ahead of you and you you don't know what it's going to look like but it is it's coming so quickly in this crisis yeah. so we started with analogous research where else have we seen in different contexts a crisis fall upon a society and they come out better on the other end. So in March of 2020, there was a team at Experience Point digging into all of this research around the Chicago fire. The Chicago fire Mm. famously and tragically, it burnt a lot of Chicago to the ground in the 19th century. But Chicago is this beautiful city now and a lot of it can be attributed to some of the regulations that were set in place to protect the waterfront after the fire, for example. So a tangent, Colin, but sometimes in time of crisis, process can be useful, tools can be useful until we develop instincts to be more wrong or in, in a time of ambiguity when, when there is only wrong and you're only making bets. 
where can we draw confidence from? Sometimes from process. And then within that particular process, where can we get insight from is analogous contexts. Yeah, I love that. I love the Chicago. I was just uh, immediately as you were going into that, I was thinking about things like the, the World War and London. You know, and, and everybody talks about, and it has a link to leadership because they talk about, you know, Churchill being a great war leader, but outside war, he was never, you know, the, his reputation was less. And there's this piece about the biggest challenges and how we rise to, to the biggest challenges and how we deal with them as a leader is an important thing. But sometimes, you know, we, we talked for a while in our business about Cotter, how he changed the burning platform in his change model. I mean, it used to be you lead with a burning platform and then everything changes. However, what he realized is that, you know, the burning platform was not always there. So he changed it to, you know, exactly. Just thinking back in the human-centric way, what are we trying to do? What are we observing and how we're operating? So it's a interesting thought for us in, in the leadership context. I want to just tackle on to your side of leadership because you've been on a journey you're now running a team around transformation. You've had the pandemic. What have you learned for yourself around leadership and particularly around the context of being more wrong, Andrew? Well, adding in there, particularly around the context of being more wrong, I'm grateful, Colin, because I have lots of wrong. <laughs> more <laughs> wrong to contribute than the, you know, here, here's what to do. So leading this transformation team, this is a significant change for our business where success for us has long been defined by like a great workshop experience. Was that a great workshop experience for people? And over time, just recognizing we need to take more responsibility. That is when people are engaging in a workshop, they want a great workshop experience naturally, but they're investing with us because of the outcome that workshop will help them to achieve. So taking more responsibility for those outcomes has been a, a significant change. I've been fortunate to see, like working with clients over years, to see those clients that are doing incredible work and achieving outcomes versus those that, you know, would say best workshop experience ever and achieving great things, but not at the same scale. I've had the opportunity to see what's possible when an organization sets some different conditions. Not everyone on my team or people newer to the team haven't witnessed, haven't experienced that. It is a challenge to our identity or what we used to celebrate ourselves for. So one of the ways I've been wrong is having seen something that feels so clear to me in the market. Now, how to, to share that internally and get people excited versus you know, this classic mistake of let's, you know, set a vision based upon what I've learned, kind of set a vision, start operating around that vision internally, and then expect people to get on board with that vision. I've yeah. really slowed down what's possible with experience point by doing that. Then of course, as you open it up to more people, get more people, more direct contact with our customers and more ownership and contributing to the vision and the way that we execute it not only are those people on board, but then you start to see just what limitations I've placed on the solutions we're creating by taking too much ownership myself versus inviting in diverse perspectives. I love that. We, we've had a similar process. I don't love that, Colin. It was, it was yeah. a lesson to learn. 
but I'm glad it's, it's good for you and your podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Andrew, I'm no celebrating your pain. And, uh, <laughs> but let me share you a bit of my pain, which is, you know, we, we've worked on this, a similar problem is that we've got our stories, but most of the stories were generated by myself or, or people who've been in the business a while. And we've gone through a storytelling or a narrative process recently eating our own dog food, as we would call it, to start to think about that. And actually what we realize is our team have so many different stories that they could tell that could help us in shaping uh, the way. But also they've got to go off and have their own stories and their own experiences and be able to relate it back. So we found the, the storytelling and the narrative piece, as you mentioned before, as a powerful way to do that. But it, it's classically as a as a leader, I've got my story, I've got a point of view. So pin your ears back and let me tell you how I think we should go forward versus letting them experience it and getting more value out of that. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I think we suffer from a bit of the same disease there, Colin. That is, it's a great thing that we're easily inspired or optimistic enough to be inspired by things worthy of being inspired by. But when we're so inspired and we expect yeah. other people to, to get right to where we are, by the, not, not even the same means, but just by yeah. hearing through us how inspired we are, I wonder if that, how many times like I need to learn that that's, that's not the right way to get people inspired and is the objective to get people inspired or is that an opportunity to be more wrong, have people question that about which I am inspired yet? <laughs> I definitely do. I heard a, a great Francis Ford Coppola quote about his experiences. He said, you know, I spent my whole career being told not to do things and then spend the latter part of my career. And I'm going to, again, get the quote wrong spend the latter part of my career being celebrated for lifelong achievements about doing the same things and wondering who was right and who was wrong. So we spend a lot of our earlier career probably doing the right things, but being told off for them and by leaders like myself. <laughs> and then, you know, as we go through our latter career, starting to go off and with, with in, in theory, increased wisdom, go off and trying or we're trying to do things in a creative way or a different way, which which provide value. It's fascinating to me. So let me let me end with a question, Andrew, for you. Then, if you were to to go back and and talk to your twenty five year old self, what would you tell them at this point? What would be your learning? It might sound pat. We just said we want to challenge our hypotheses, but this is confirming a yeah. lot of what we've been talking about already. But yeah. seeking inspiration, I think I was good at but seeking diversification, like seek diverse viewpoints, understand people that have had a, a different experiences in life than me is something we all need to do, something definitely I would coach myself to have done a better job of and just invite in viewpoints that challenge your own viewpoints, match the inspiration that you're drinking in with an exploration of where, where you might be wrong, where you're thinking might need some refining. Yeah, I can echo with that. The echo chamber of my 20s was not the most helpful place to be. Whereas now, the, I think it was, there was a great man, Randy Taylor, encouraged me at the age of 21 to start exploring different points of view and different ways of looking at he was heavily involved with the civil rights movement in, in the u.s and i look back at that that moment at 21 and sitting on a in a rocking chair on in montreat north carolina 
And I, I didn't really take that to heart as a, as a message till I got to my mid thirties, probably forties and thinking, and I think it's a great one, get diverse views and opinions. And if, if we're like that, then you can understand where diversity, equity, and inclusion has had its barriers right the way through at the ages as well. Mr. Webster, Andrew, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time today. If people want to reach out to you or hear more about you, where can they go to to, to get some information? Experiencepoint.com is the, the best place to do that and, and see what we're up to and contact ExperiencePoint. Colin, uh, the pleasure was mine. I feel like it's my responsibility to have proven you wrong at some point, which I, I didn't do, but next time I'll get you. <laughs> There's a challenge. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's do this again and see. You know, it's been brilliant. Andrew, thank you and thank you. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Take care. Likewise, take care. Bye. Wow, folks, great conversation with Andrew. Always is, whenever it's in the advisory board or or talking to him in the concept that we're talking about today. It's just, it's, it always fills my heart with I, with hope and also it fills my head with ideas. So, And we've heard today about the, the concept of the broader view with design thinking, looking at workforce transformation, the combination of change and design thinking in there is one thing that stood out for me today. But second is just remembering the social impact that design thinking can have and the work that we did with Heart and Stroke Association and looking at pediatrics and how that, that operates in that space. So it's it's massive the potential this has for social impact. And thirdly, just love hearing about the keys to the candy store and working in that space and how accountability needs to be mixed with a degree of humility and, and a humble approach to what he did. And therefore, I always look at Andrew in, in that space. And that's why, lastly, I say humble, humility, but a great asset to our business going forward. So hope you enjoyed it. Love to hear your feedback on it. And I'll look forward to welcoming you back on another episode of Leadership Tales. Mm-hmm.